This week's episode is supported by Nikon USA, whose latest camera is the Z8. Its compact design and user-friendly form factor are combined with state-of-the-art autofocus and sensor technology, making it an ideal tool for any photographer producing stills, video, or both. Whether you're upgrading from an older DSLR or making the step up to a full-frame sensor, find out how the Z8 can transform and elevate your photography by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. We also have the support of the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout. My brother went on a recent cleaning tear in our family home. As a result, he found a treasure trove of photographs that we hadn't seen in, in decades. At his birthday party, he had collected them into small albums, and family and friends, we went through them, sharing the wonderful memories that those photographs held. It was especially interesting to see the neighborhood as it had been. The used car lot that became a church, a gas station that turned into a strip mall. You know, it's one thing to remember places in your mind, but it's another thing to see them immortalized in, in photographs. Photographer Barbara Mensch, decades ago, documented her neighborhood, the lower south side of New York, the location of the original Fulton Fish Market, a place that at one point in its history was the source of the majority of fish consumed in the United States. It was a place that was fully alive when the rest of the city was sleeping, filled with truckers, dock workers, and a few wise guys. Her images document a, a historic place that was defined not just by what people did, but who they were. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. Oh, welcome, Barbara. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. It's a great book. Um, yeah, I love talking to people about, you know, of course, their personal projects and especially yeah. people who have dedicated long periods of time yeah. um, to, to it. But this subject of the, the Fulton Fish Market, it's, it's it's interesting photographically, historically, but it's 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 such a wonder to look at. Yeah, because I think everybody knows about the market. You know, yet to have uh, this kind of immersion is, is is kind of rare. And the fact that considering how challenging it was to photograph there, especially when you first started in the 80s, it's no surprise that there's not an abundance of photographs of it like there might be of Times Square. Yeah. But what what drew you to wanting to make photographs there in the first place? Well, uh, it's very easy to answer that question because I moved into the area. And uh, at the time in the early 80s, it was pretty much a no man's land. It was uh, isolated, out of the way in terms of uh, the where it was situated in relation to the rest of New York. 
it was not very populated, uh, if we're talking specifically about the southern waterfront, but that also has to do with the whole lower Manhattan in general, all the way down to the World Trade Center and Battery Park. It was not very populated, period. And in my area in particular, there were pioneer artists that had moved into the abandoned warehouses, but a lot of these old warehouses were still in use because at night they opened up and became the, the Fulton Market, which, by the way, was at one time, up until they got ousted uh, by Mike Bloomberg in 2005 was the largest seafood hub in the Western Hemisphere, generating approximately, uh, factually, I'll be as concise as I can, at least a billion dollars in revenue, at least per, per year. The largest market in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, and up until, I think, the, from what I was reading, up until the 50s and 60s, that the great majority, if not 75 or 80% of the fish that was consumed by the country came through that yeah. market, which is yeah. remarkable to think, of, think yes. about, that all of that fish coming through that one location. And it was an all-cash business, <laughs> and there were no computers, <laughs> and it was all cash in the middle oh, of the night, um, okay? So, there you go. <laughs> Think about that. And, yeah. and no police. And no police. <laughs> yes, you can, you can only imagine what was happening. Oh. Which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. Okay. Um, but one of the, the fascinating things about it is that, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about taking on a project, you know, yeah. there are a lot of different obstacles that are involved in, in, in getting, being able to do it. You know, when I, and we're not even talking about technical stuff. It's just sure. about logistics. And and one of the obvious problems was just being able, especially as a woman during that time, to go in and photograph. But the one thing I wanted to talk to you about first is, like, because of the nature of that market, life there starts at about 1 or 2 in the morning. Yeah. So there's for a lot of reasons, that's, that's enough for most people to say, Oh no! I'll I'll find something else to go and photograph. Right. Much less getting up at midnight to go and photograph in a smelly place at one or two in the morning. But that didn't seem to be an issue for you, huh? Well, you know, when you have obsessions, the the hours that you work become secondary. And I am very much a day person. So, yeah, changing my lifestyle to work all night was certainly a a big change for me. But what I did learn by staying staying there for as long as I, I did was that, you know, human beings in general are diurnal. They work and, you know, prepare eat during the day, they do their activities, all humans, all, and, you know, many animals. And at night, you rest. In this case, it was all topsy-turvy. And I really think psychologically that affected the way people behaved. Um, Certainly in the night, nighttime brings out certain kinds of characteristics in one's personality or... Uh, let me phrase this in a better way. Because it's at night, 
there are certain behavioral patterns that may come out of a person that normally you wouldn't expect to see during the day. You know. When you first started photographing there, um, there was a lot of resistance that you met because here you come, here's a photographer coming in, you know, starting to make pictures where photographers usually don't come to make photographs. Um, So tell me about finding a way in so that you can make the photographs and not get run run out. Well, in order for me to answer that, I really have to give you some background into this whole situation. Of course, over the years, there have been many photographers who have gone down to South Street and, you know, spent a few hours trying to capture some images. But what I quickly learned, and particularly as a resident, that the Fulton market in itself was self-regulated and they only had a certain amount of hours to push their product and to make their money. So anyone who had no business there was not welcomed into this whole, um, this whole group of people trying to, to conduct business. So that, that on was an obvious thing. So if you were going to bring yourself, put yourself in the middle of a very serious place where goods are exchanged for thousands and thousands of dollars, and you only have a few hours to make that money, then you have to be mindful of that and respectful of that. So that was the first thing I had to deal with. But more I guess for the general public, what's really more important to understand is that in the early 80s, um, the mayor of New York City, Mayor Koch, um, decided that the waterfront needed a new facelift. And in order to do that, they had to somehow make peace with the Fulton market workers or get rid of them. And this is something that New York has been trying to do for a while since the boats became less and less bringing the catch into the different piers adjoining the East River in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge. So remarkably and coincidentally, At the same time that the mayor decided to uh, invite the Rouse Corporation to redevelop the waterfront and create a mall on the East River, Rudolph Giuliani, who was then federal prosecutor, he was not yet mayor, but he had gone to war with the mob, wherever they were, you know, the garment center and, you know, but the Fulton Market was one of his main targets and he spent years in this um, this crusade called Operation Sea Probe. And what that meant was that he would flood the market with all kinds of agents taking pictures from the FDR drive or covertly driving by, um, indicting people wherever he could with the RICO laws, which are now uh, big news with Donald Trump. He was the first to use that. Uh, A RICO law is about getting people involved in a syndicated criminal outfit where there's a group involved as opposed to one person. So for me, not, you know, having to learn what was going on with this this aspect 
of the experience made it so difficult for me because no one wanted me around. They thought I was a federal agent and, you know, I was certainly, uh, I remember being attacked with chunks of ice, you know. I mean, it was, you know, and of course threats to my life. (laughs) But, um, you know, like any responsible artist and photographer, you become mindful of that and it becomes a very slow process of trying to create and establish relationships and, you know, over time prove because who who am I to just come into some place and assume that I can do what I want to do. So it was a very gradual process of sharing my work with them actually bringing other photography books down to express, to try and share the love and the passion I had for the medium. And of course, in order for me to be there, I had to convince the wise guys that (laughs) I was there to uh, chronicle their lives as a historical document. Yeah, and I think one of the things they came to sort of understand about, you know, the the, the mafia, the mob's sort of influence on, on on the fish market, it wasn't so much that they were in control of it, but that they were basically were having to be paid off by the people who were there running their businesses in order to be able to function. And that's I think right. that's sort of a, that's right. And I think it's a misunderstanding that I and I, probably a lot of other people had. So did did you get? Um, a sense of how it worked in terms of like yep. the politics as a result of it, being there and, and hanging out with these people on a regular basis. Yes, of course, I had to. I mean, I had and I had to play ball with them. And 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 one of the most important things was out of here's a word you've heard a lot out of respect, <laughs> respect, <laughs> fear, whatever. I could not publish or share with anybody any of the work I was doing unless it went through certain people, certain men. And in one particular case, without his help, I could never have done this project ever. I used to call him my editor. (laughs) 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 And I'd say, well, uh, this is what I got today. You want to have a look? And of course, sometimes I, you know, because that was the agreement, even though it wasn't like we sat down and said, well, Barbara, you're going to do this. And that. It's, it's just a lot of things when you're dealing in this kind of element are unspoken. And God forbid you don't have any street smarts about you because you could never pick up on their, their the nature of their communication. So um, in that regard... I had to uh, share my interviews, my oral histories, which I, in this particular book, since it's not about the Fulton Market, I, I, and I also published a book on that before, I just kept it to very simple statements. But I do remember uh, one young man who we were actually at the locker room, that, that photograph that you love so much, where it says, fuck the corporation. And he started telling me about the, his, the legacy of his, his relatives who did, 
you know, our main historical figures in New York, um, Cosa Nostra. And I remember, you know, I wrote it all down and it was fascinating and I had to bring it to my my uh, editor and boy did he get angry and he threw him out of the market he lost his income I felt terrible about that mm. God knows what else happened I, I, I don't know so yeah yeah but you um, there was a bar there the Paris bar yes and uh, Mikey who was the bartender there was one of your first yes. friends that you made there tell me about him and that and what it was like to be in that bar Oh, my God. Well, you know, thank God for Mikey, because you weren't allowed to photo. There are two bars. There are actually two waterfront bars, Carmine's in Paris. And no no one with cameras could walk in there. They would throw them out or, you know, do the classic thing, take the film out of the, you know, do the camera, <laughs> pull the film out. You know, just remember, this is before digital photography and, uh, you know... And and it was um, the most compelling place for me. I, I, I you know the fluorescent lighting and this beautiful hand carved bar with this beautiful mirrors and the reflections and the tiles and the ambiance of the place with all of these um, longshoremen and unloaders, everyone with their grappling hooks and blood-stained aprons coming out of the fillet houses. This was like, you couldn't ask for a more, uh, a treasure trove of images. You, as a, as a, as a cinematographer, as a photographer, it, it was, for me, the most compelling sight. However, you know, I got thrown out like everybody else. And, you know, I did come back the following morning and Mikey realized, because the building had just been sold, that, you know, he, he said, all right, come back when the wise guys aren't in here and, you know, just be fast. But at nine o'clock in the morning, you still have the characters. You still have the old ship captains or Captain Clay, all these people, these men who used to actually have jobs on the waterfront and they were living in the flop houses and and uh, the Paris bar, by the way, was had these small apartments, which uh, uh, up until World War II and past that became like these very, um, I don't know, what what's the word, SRO um, apartments for people who are on minimal income, if okay, not yeah. welfare. So a lot of these old men, these old timers lived around in these abandoned warehouse, you know, the warehouses where the fish guys stored, you know, the ice machines and all of the uh, produce, you know, in the freezer that didn't get sold the night before. So it was, you know, I'd be in there at nine o'clock in the morning and all these guys were drinking, you know, and uh, so I did the best I could to get those of my earliest photographs of the bar of that place and you know till this day it's my understanding that i'm the only one that has these images you know they're they're you know i i think so i researched it myself you know over and over paris bar paris bar paris bar nope the only pictures nothing you know so 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 uh i don't know so that's that's 
That's that. Mikey, by the way, these were, and the thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the thing about these men is that they were classic New Yorkers. And Mikey, he, he would, um, I have these photographs, he would just hold his cigarette like Humphrey Bogart. You know, in every <laughs> movie that he, that which one was he in? Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca, um, and he'd have these gestures. They all did. They were classic, and a lot of times they reminded me of Damon Runyon characters because uh. so many of them came out of the thirties and the forties. Anyway, you know, so um, you know, so it's it's really interesting especially the portraits these these the men in these photographs look like straight out of central casting i know, you know? but they're not <laughs> but no but they're they're real people yeah. and and what's really interesting is not just the way they look or the way they dress but sometimes the body language yes yes like there's one like vinny the yeah. portrait of Vinny that's been like a really popular yeah. one on on social media. Yeah. I mean, I saw that portrait and, and it was just like, I mean, he could have been a model. But yeah, but, but he his, was an unloader, you yeah. know, for a wise guy company, you know. Right. But but the but the body language was so expressive. And I think it's it was I see that in a lot of a lot of the portraits that you made. And I think that, that what's really interesting is that. I think these men had a certain comfort level with their own bodies that yes. I think is rare. And I can't out. help but think, but I can't help but think that it was largely a, a result of the fact of how they use their body for work. That's that in order to do that kind idea. of hard work, that yeah. you had to feel comfortable and be aware of your body in a way that most people who sit behind a desk never have to. I, I, that's a really interesting observation. I, I didn't think of that. But in general, the men down there, I mean, they, they taught me a lot about survival. But they, many of them, and I'm talking more now, addressing more of the people who are in business, like the stand men, the, the salesmen, the men that ran these companies. Just remember, this was the early 80s and all they had was their brains and their muscle. That's it. And I think when you are in an environment where you are so tested over and over again, every day, every day, mm. you, there's a certain kind of uh, pride or self-assurance that you get from making money uh, in the most dire of circumstances, you know, and the fact that the waterfront was filled with floods and nasty weather and the East River would ice up. It was, and the only warmth you had were these fire barrels, you know, glowing in the middle of the night. You know, it, it, it brings you to think about your own life and what your own sense of struggle is and what is the nature of survival and what is this all about, this whole money-making thing. And, and of course, given what went on down there years ago, you know, I'm not uh, condone, I'm not, supporting anything that the mafia has done but look at where we are today you know it makes their yeah. criminality pale in comparison i don't know why i got off on that but go ahead sorry that's, that's fine, fine you know um you, as as you mentioned bloomberg 
um, started the gentrification, you know, with the development of condominiums and all these other things, these development that started happening down there. But one of the interest, one of the more interesting images that I, that you have in the book is uh, because of its proximity to, to Wall Street. You yeah. have this picture of this guy in a, like an attache case and a woman in, yeah. in, in work clothes walking across yeah. there. And I thought, wow, what a what an incredible juxtaposition between these two different worlds, which couldn't be more, more different. Yet, man, they were literally overlapping each other. At least during well, that period of time. Well, the, the commentary on that is that once I got really, 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 comf- not comfortable, but, you, you know, you, I was there long enough and uh, trying to understand that world um, enough to put myself in the position of a worker looking out on South Street, looking out on the market, and then by 7 o'clock, everything would start to change daybreak people going to work parking in the same areas that were used during the night for the customers to come with their vans to what we call loading zones where uh, you had one person directing and overseeing where the uh, the men uh, they were called um, journeymen where they would bring the deliveries of fish from the stands from the concessions to the people who bought the fish who usually showed up in these tra- not tractor trails and vans or you know large cars where they could put their crates of seafood so once I started looking at the world through their eyes these kinds of pictures became very clear to me you know like oh this is what they're seeing. And mm-hmm. just remember, many of the men down there, it was almost like a Eugene O'Neill play in the Harry Ape. They had no education, zero. And a lot of the old timers that um, I photographed who are long gone, they all lived in the area. This was this was the Fourth Ward. This is what Tammany Hall said, Boss Tweed set up in the 1800s. They, they lived in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge, and they, you know, and their parents, or they had immigrated from most mostly the Mezzogiorno in uh, southern Italy. So Mezzogiorno meaning you know the middle of it, uh, southern Italy and Sicily, um, and uh, that. That ambiance, that was um, something that became very clear to me, you know, that there was this thing about, I don't want to feel inferior to you because you have a fancy job. I'm making this money. You know, I'm doing my work and I, I can compete with you in the money, in the money, <laughs> in the bunny area. So, I, I, I imagine... That as that gentrification started to happen, and that the prioritization was going to development and bringing in a different type of yeah. people into into that area, that that some of the anger was not just about you know the development, but somehow that their contributions were being diminished and 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 devalued as a result of that, despite the fact that all the work, all the blood, all the, you know, everything that they had done were as important to the development of the city 
if not the country. And that well, somehow this development, they yeah. were just being like, well, yeah, you're yeah. not important anymore. Yeah. But they always felt like that. That was the nature of men that worked along the waterfront and doing these quote unquote menial jobs. They they were always considered the lower rung of the societal ladder. If you had a job on the waterfront unloading a boat, you know, who would pay attention to you, you know? And, uh, and so a lot of the, 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 uh, the experiences I had down there were trying to understand the justification. <laughs> oh, God, this is like getting complicated. The justification for their criminality, stealing fish, for example, which mm. was a big thing with Rudy Giuliani, you know, the, the pilfering of fish from the tractor trailers and interstate commerce, you're tampering with. The fact is, is that they felt they weren't being respected. So if they were going to do a few, earn a few extra dollars to feed their family, that was their justification. And I, I put that in my introduction. I said, well, what do you think about, uh, you know, doing something bad? And, and Mikey was like, yeah, rob a corporation. They can swallow it. Why rob a guy that's got to feed his family? Yeah, it's a great quote. Yeah, right. <laughs> so as, you know, Giuliani was using, you know, the RICO, uh, RICO laws in order to, you know, tamp tamp down on on the mob's influence on the fish market, and then there's this development that's happening. Yeah, and so this whole lifestyle, this whole thing, you know, in the '90s starts to Fall starts apart. to change. Yeah. So how you had already been photographing for a good amount of time, but how did your how did photographically did you shift if if you shifted at all in terms of the changing the changing narrative and the, and the story that was playing out well by the 90s i was no longer um down at on south street you know that project i had you know as one of my friends from smitty fillet's house used to say frank he was brilliant he says well when you start to hear the same stories again or your pictures start to become repetitive. That's when you know you've done your story. This is a fishmonger telling me this. This isn't like you know, one of my mentors. <laughs> These guys, would, they just were so smart. They just knew it. I mean, they, 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 till this day I, the, their lessons are in my head. Um, so my lens obviously was focused on other aspects of Lower Manhattan and places that, uh, you know, I would routinely, routinely um, interact with. You know, Canal Street, the Bowery, Tribeca, you know, these are all streets I would walk as a local resident. Uh, and if you repeatedly walk the, the, in this environment, you begin hopefully to become sensitive to certain things. And uh, in the section two, you know, each section I put quotes in from an urban historian or, you know, uh, someone uh, that, that's interesting to me. So section two was about uncertainty and neglect and where do we go from here? And um, I used a lot of photographs from the 90s that I shot to 
kind of illustrate that idea and some of them become more documentary style, some become more like metaphors for where we were, you know, where I was as, you know, because this project is really a personal timeline for me. You know, in other words, I didn't photograph like the COVID epidemic because that that affected everybody. That wasn't a lower Manhattan issue. But we had floods, we had fires, we had arson, we had uh, things that didn't work anymore. We used to have these beautiful clocks all over Broadway because um, the, the, the center of newspaper printing, as you were talking about, was by City Hall in Park Row. So all around that area are these gorgeous uh, clocks and they're made out of this iron, wrought iron. They're gorgeous. And I would walk down these streets lots of times to pick up my son at school and there was this one clock on Duane Street and it, the numbers were faded and the hands never moved. <laughs> and, you know, that's in the book. And I love that picture because to me, it represents the 90s. It was like, uh, <laughs> where do we go yeah. from here? You know, and that, that was the beauty of looking back over these this time period and seeing where the story was taking me personally. The Nikon Z8 is a camera with the build and form factor that users of the legendary Nikon D850 have enjoyed and appreciated. But this camera is smaller and lighter, featuring the latest in sensor and autofocus technology to meet virtually any photographic need, including sports, wildlife, and portraiture. Whether shooting still, video, or both, the Z8 is meant to be the right tool for any occasion. Its 45.7 megapixel full-frame stack sensor delivers rich detail and beautiful color. It features blistering fast and accurate autofocus, including subject detection, developed with deep learning technology. Its VR technology provides up to six stops of image stabilization when a tripod just isn't an option. It features internal 8K video and the ability to produce 120p at 4K. Its pro-grade construction features an eco-friendly carbon fiber chassis, premium weather sealing, a sensor shield, and dual card slots. So you'll enjoy a camera that delivers even under the harshest of circumstances. Learn more about the Z8 and how it can make a difference in your photography by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. The Charcoal Book Club is back as a sponsor and wants to share a special event coming in 2024. The Chico Review is an annual event that gathers photographers to celebrate their love for photography. It's more than just an opportunity to share your work and meet publishers and editors. It's a rare opportunity to be surrounded and immersed by a community that prioritizes photography and being a photographer. If you have never had such an experience, mark the date and register for the event scheduled for March 17th through the 24th in Prey, Montana. Find out more by visiting ChicoReview.com or CharcoalBookClub.com. What I like about the, the work, and I think it's a really 
a good point to make for people who are interested in photographing communities is, is yes, you were in New York, but you were focused on a, a particular neighborhood in, in New York. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when people think about, oh, of course you could be a good photographer in New York. It's just a city that's always alive. And, but, uh, but there's, there's something about focusing on a small area and, and not looking at it from an exotic point of view, because that invites a certain type of photographs. Yeah, which but are boring. When, <laughs> yeah. But when you're you completely immersed into a space, yeah. when you're completely immersed in a space like you were, and you see things that other people will never see like that, like that clock, right? Because there are things that are invisible to most. And when you're carefully, carefully observing a, a space, a location, a neighborhood, over and over and over again, things get revealed to you as a consequence mm-hmm. of you looking it's that carefully. Right. And a lot of your photographs sort of speak to, to that. Because, yeah, you could have someone going in there, you know, a great photographer with expensive equipment, but that doesn't mean that they would see what you saw. That's right. But you said something. What is a great photographer? Okay. We had uh, uh, Baroness Abbott, mm-hmm. and um, who else was there? Uh, what's his name? I can't remember right now. But the point is, is that Baroness Abbott, I'm using her as an example, f- focus, focusing on one topic, and, and my mentor, of course, Bruce Davidson, who I learned a lot from our lengthy conversations. When you immerse yourself in a subject, so many things are revealed to you and the the learning, the the experience goes both ways, you know. Uh, So for me, walking around the Bowery, going back and forth and up and down, going shopping, doing this, you, you see things, oh my God, like the Globe Meat Slicer store, you know, and realizing that the 90s was a slow transformation of that part of my neighborhood. Uh, the new museum got built, um, uh, and that was the beginning of pointing to the Bowery as a new destination for the art world and for people to come and live beyond some of the pioneers that lived down there, like Robert Frank, you know, like, no, but, you know, who lived in these places? Like, just, you know, you had to be like a nutty artist, you know, I need my space, you know, and that's all that mattered. You know, you just wanted a space to work. So the slow, gradual transformation is what was becoming revealed to me in my pictures. Um, and they, you know, a lot of them I forgot I even had. So, uh, you know, the Bowery now is uh, is almost, you, you, none of these places exist anymore. You know, cash yeah. register, machine repair shops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, you know Petrella's point, some crazy guy who used to have a newsstand on the corner of uh, Canal Street at the Bowery. He used to paint stuff. And the cops would come and say, get rid of that signage. And he'd always, like, 
paint. Oh, if you want to go to Orchard Street and then you point the way or, you know, like you'd have directions for people. Oh, by the way, if you want to buy a newspaper, you can buy one. But the point is, it was all this crazy stuff that was so much part of the character of the neighborhood. So how do you not photograph that? How do you not um, embrace the beauty of the idiosyncrasies of people and their habits and how they do business. And and then came 9-11, and then everything changed again. So how did you feel that accelerated what happened, uh, the changes that happened? Well, that was a very big political thing because um, people, you know, the, 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 the whole fear of everyone in lower Manhattan is that nobody would want to live there anymore. You know, that that was it. Look, my, my place is right next to the Brooklyn bridge, five minutes from our police station, you know, our main police station and the federal courts and everything else and wall street and the world trade center. So you would think uh, this is a terrorist target, you know, why stay? However, the the remarkable thing that happened was that New York, that's why I put that Jane Jacobs quote in, she was one of the heroines of uh, urban, not only urban history, but uh, really crusades against gentrification or the nature or trying to define gentrification. And she made this comment that really struck me and it was about cities that why is it that certain cities cannot after tragedy and harm comes to them revive or rejuvenate itself and why is it that some do. So I thought that was very interesting like she she referred to those kind of cities as dull and inert. And New York, New York, our metropolis, is anything but dull and inert. So again, I had to force myself to go through these photographs, uh, the ones that I took the day of the uh, attack, um, which I never published. I never had any interest in doing anything about 9-11. It was just too horrible and there were too many pictures out. But when I saw, I had a photograph, uh, you know, because I was home that day. Uh, I ran up to the roof and I have that picture of the plane, the second plane, actually going, piercing through the trade tower. I, I, you know, I didn't even look at them. So, you know, I said, holy crap, you know. But what we did in Lower Manhattan is that we came back and the first test was Tribeca. And the fact that they created this walkway between uh, West Street, which pretty much is closer to the Hudson, and um, Church Street, which is pretty, it's by Trinity, it's by um, one of the churches and it's very close to Broadway. So all of a sudden people had uh, uh, a way to to cut through the island, Lower Manhattan, that was central to where they could get to business, to you know certain activities, to buying and selling. So um, 
we also had some very key figures who lived in uh, Tribeca, and that's Robert De Niro, who, who jump-started the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, and remarkably, the real estate values held. You know, they didn't go down, and people didn't leave in droves, as was predicted. And Mike Bloomberg put in place a tax incentive um, where you would be not required to pay taxes if you bought property, if you rented, the rents were kind of tweaked a little bit. So Lower Manhattan held, and Wall Street held, you know, and... uh, we went on from there to slowly rebuild. However, what I did put in that book was what is the nature of rebuilding and where is this building boom going and how many jobs and how many people have been displaced and how much change is change. So, mm-hmm. one, of the, um, one of the things that's kind of interesting about your work is, is is the span of time you know you got three decades you know that that you've photographed this this location and there's 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 the matter of um well, and now I'm drawing a blank on the word it's okay take your time <laughs> nostalgia <laughs> yeah. nostalgia yeah. That's, yeah. that's the word yeah and I'm wondering what role do you think that nostalgia plays in in your work, because you weren't, you know, you weren't necessarily thinking about that when you make the photographs. But when yeah. you look at it now, and you know, collectively, you've put together several books, you know that. But what role does it play? Well, I don't really, you know, even though people might say, "Oh, look at this picture of the old um, blah blah blah," no, I I don't consider it nostalgic. I just consider it. Uh, Again, it's the same thing I thought about 25 years ago. When we destroy these institutions or, you know, we move these little mom and pop shops out, what are we replacing it with? It's always, for me, the universal question. And that's the the whole nature of the book. You know, it's not like I said, well, gentrification is and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, it's not about that. It's about, it's a rhetorical question. And that's why I end it with, uh, you know, these new buildings going up in lower Manhattan. Some of them look quite absurd you know, in terms of the landscape of these old tenements, (laughs) you know. And and then the last shot was actually from, I recently did this commission for the Howard Hughes and Jean Georges, the tin building. So I was up in the offices and and going east to west, you know, you see this, this, you know, it's almost pulsating with skyline. You know, and new buildings and glass and steel. So, so uh, uh, I I don't consider nostalgia, but other people might find it. I don't care what they you know what as long as you react to the pictures. I don't care. <laughs> you know, instead of just going, oh, okay, next. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned in your introduction. Um, about COVID, about that sort of yeah. led you to go back into your into your archive. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about how that time influenced your return to the work and reconsidering it. Well, it it's, it follows with the um, thing I just mentioned, and that was a few years ago. Uh, I was approached by 
this major real estate developer who yet again was going to develop the waterfront. We've had a succession of different developers coming in over the years and trying to, you know, make a success of these mall projects. So Howard Hughes, which is a strange name, one of the largest real estate companies in America, just made a, yet another deal with the city and then brought in Jean-Georges. He is our great celebrity chef. And they pumped gazillions of dollars into re, uh, refurbishing or uh, trying to rebuild the tin building. And of course, it's, it, they had it level at first and then bring back certain elements of it. So they had asked me if I was interested in doing uh, some kind of installation in the new building. And as a result, I had to go back into my archive because um, of a lot of logistical reasons, a lot of the photos I wanted to use, I couldn't use. So I had to keep digging and digging and digging. And lo and behold, I started to realize that this project that I was about to immerse myself in was a small sliver of the work that I had really done. And again, because you know, you, you're going back in time, you're working with film, you're not digital, so it doesn't automatically come up on screen, you're not downloading. Every, every phase of a photographer who worked with film, you have to be careful to scan and notate, and I'm not that great at it, or at least I'm getting better. So, you know, I was just basically going through rolls of negatives and contact sheets and going, oh! Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember this walk through Tribeca when they were destroying all the artist lofts, you know? So, so uh, you know, these, sometimes you, you find you're, you, you're led in certain directions because of some other uh, thing that calls you, you know, one thing leads to another and another. It's always an interesting journey to return to work that you haven't looked at in a long time. Yes, yes. And you make some wonderful discoveries and you, you go, I took that? Exactly, exactly, really good. exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. So, but what did you did? What did you discover about yourself as a photographer, especially when you looked at the at the earlier work? Well, that's what do you think of yourself as a photographer? Yeah. Oh my God! How could you? Oh God! You're putting me on the spot right now. <laughs> How do I? You know, let me put it to you this way: I, uh, when I was teaching at the ICP, I would tell these students, "Why do you want to do this? It's it's a miserable life. <laughs> it's, it's you're never happy with anything. You're always trying to." get better and better and better and in the end you you want the you you want your work to be somehow to touch people and to make them even if it's for the slightest you know somehow the work has to touch people and get in their consciousness and become part of them and that's the real job of an artist it's and this is the hardest thing to do particularly in an environment now where everything is a business and everything is corporate and everything is against the artist having a real voice 
you know, everyone's being drowned out by the next person and the next person and the next person. So in that environment, if someone like you can say, Barbara, you've done a wonderful job, that that means the world to me, you know? It's about your work getting through to people, or even if it's one photograph, one image, that's all you need, that's all the world needs, is something to hold on to that brings them beauty or provokes them or inspires them, you know, makes them angry, makes them like, I, I you know, and, and that, that's the job. It's a job, and, and, you know, you become a vessel, you know, to share. So what was your, what, what was your, um, in terms of making a living uh, as a photographer, what, I've done what everything. You, yeah, talk I've to done me everything. about that. Well, I've shot weddings. I'm a very good photographer. I can photograph anything. You know, I've done portraits. I had uh, a dark room for many. I still do, uh, and that's how I earned a living before I joined my first gallery. Um, and I printed pictures for everybody including Madonna. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, I can only say that, that doing darkroom work uh, brings you into a different realm of experience because you get to see what other people have done. You work on commercial jobs. Um, you do... Uh, um, uh, things for yourself, you get better at printing because you've done work for other people. So that was a, my primary uh, way of earning a living until I joined uh, my the, the gallery that I was at for 13 years, which really helped me with my income until her death. And then I started teaching and doing other things. And I've been working on these public commissions and books, so... You know, and I keep working. <laughs> I keep working. How has the the? Because this is your third book, or is it your yes, fourth? Third, third book. Okay, so you so you've gotten you know some acknowledgments for your work and greater awareness as a result of of these books coming out. But how has how has the release of the books and the attention that they've gotten sort of impacted your career as just a day to day photographer? Well, I think anytime you get. Uh, attention for your work that's that's a great thing right uh so uh but i i look at uh my career always uh just to mirror in my other book in the shadow of genius the designer of the brooklyn bridge didn't just design the brooklyn bridge he spent a lifetime doing smaller projects that were groundbreaking and challenging each and every one of them. So for me, I feel very much the same way that every project that I do and every book that I do is a stepping stone to something greater. And I have, you know, obviously probably too many projects, you know, that I want to do, um, um, you know, in the near future. And also, uh, I've started to go back to something that I've done years ago before I became a photographer. I, I was uh, uh, awarded a scholarship to Florence, and I used to illustrate for a couple of magazines. So I've been uh, 
getting back into my drawing, which is mm. such a mainstay of my work as a photographer, because without that knowledge and background in art, you could never do a decent photograph. And one of my mentors, of course, is Henri Cartier-Bresson, who really spent the last days of his life drawing again in the Louvre. So I'm a very complicated photographer because it's my influences come from so many different places, which um, we could discuss it another time, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned Bruce Davidson, who is yes. just a, a marvelous yes. photographer yes. And, and talent. Um, how'd you come to know him and how... And what have you valued most about your relationship oh. with him? Oh, well, okay. Well, I met him at the Howard Greenberg Gallery because for a short time I was uh, represented by that gallery before I moved to the next one. And I met Bruce there at an opening. And I don't quite remember. It was a while ago. But I don't know. Somehow... I think I met him for coffee. I, I don't really know, but we started developing a friendship. And I was very clear about this relationship, that I wasn't enamored with him. I didn't want to be a clone of him. He was just sort of like a, what was the, the character in Star Wars? Yoda, right? The mm -hmm. wise one. And I, I remember we used to go to the museums together and have coffee. We were, he was big on coffee. And we, he would just be wise. <laughs> and, you know, I, I never really asked him for help because I didn't want that. I, didn't, I, wanted, I wanted to succeed on my own, but I only wanted to have mentors who were true to their character. And one of the things I loved about Bruce was that he was so enthusiastic about his work. And I remember at the time that I was friends with him, he was probably in his 70s or something like that. And I don't know, he used to get up at five in the morning and go work in the dark room and print. And I'd say, you know, that's pretty cool <laughs> it's like you know you're getting falling out of bed into the dark room going oh i forgot you just like me you know you know he he'd go back in his negatives and find things to print and then sometimes our subject matter overlapped which and he really loved my uh, south street project and he endorsed it you know beyond anybody but you know, there was this character in my book called Heshi and he used to buy fish for the Essex Street Market and Bruce did this piece on the garden cafeteria which is all these old Jews that would hang out and, and shoot the breeze and yeah. you know eat borscht on the lower east side <laughs> and he had photos of Heshi and I had photos of Heshi <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was hysterical. So, so you know, people come into your life at certain times, and they're informative and inspirational. And Bruce was one of them. And I also have a writer uh, that I I uh, I have two writers, but uh, well, Dan Barry, who did the 
beautiful introduction. Oh my God, was that Times. gorgeous? Isn't he? He's great. I mean, how oh, many yeah. Pulitzer Prizes is it? You know, he's he's just brilliant. And Philip Lopate, who's been because in order for me to do these long term projects, you also have to learn how to write, and that is daunting. And you know, he has been such a great friend and such a great supporter and he's so brilliant that and he knows every you know he used to do film criticism and art criticism and write millions of books so i'm I'm very blessed and of course my husband greg curry the sound engineer and my son (laughs) but uh but um yeah yeah um one of the interesting things that comes up for me about uh, um, the the book and the work is people's relationship to work. Yeah. I live in California. I live in Los Angeles. So yeah, here, okay. it's, it, you, your status is associated with what you do, right? Well, I think um, that's in New York, too, unfortunately. Yeah. But there was an interesting thing, and I don't know if I read it in the book or some ancillary stuff when I was doing it, uh, sort of researching it, was the idea that that there's it's not so much what you do, but your your relationship or your perception of the of of what you're doing and how you're doing yeah. it, right? Mm-hmm. And that that has much greater value than any sort of external validation that you get. And that, and I think that that's pervasive. And when I look at the photographs of, of, of the men in, uh, in, in your book, um, and that, that being said, how do you think that observing these people working the way they did for as long as you did sort of influenced the way you look at yourself and your work? Mm. Well, I, I'm assuming you're talking about the Fulton Market. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. Well, it's kind of simple, you know, to answer. And that is, the question is, what is a tough guy? You know, it's always the question. What's, what, what's a tough guy? What does that mean? And then this this guy, his name was Uncle Rip, <laughs> um, Uncle Rip. You say, well, a tough guy is when he can get up in the middle of the night, go to work, and do his job. That's a tough guy. And, of course, there are a lot of other definitions. So I could say the same thing about myself, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'm, I'm a tough girl. <laughs> like, I just get up and I go do what I have to do. And I do it. Because I love it, you know, it's, 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 it's like experiencing the world, you know, and, and being alive and, and doing all this stuff is, is what makes you alive. I, I, you know, and the minute you, you don't want to do it anymore, that's okay too. But for me, it's the stamina, you know, to just keep Mm. going and, uh, and, and, uh, that's that's what I think one of the elements it takes to do work that hopefully somehow some way has meaning you know yeah well my last question that I ask each guest yeah. is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own and it can be oh, anyone, really? someone you've long another, admired oh does it have to be a photographer or can no, it be an artist? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's fine. 
I, I wouldn't want to recommend a photographer. You know why? Because I know too many of them. And the minute I open my mouth, I'll go, why didn't you mention me? Or why didn't you... So I, I would uh, move away from that. And I will say, out of a lot of artists that I've seen, I, I particularly am moved by cinema. And um, I think Ingmar Bergman is one of my heroes. And I also have mm -hmm. these friends in Germany, uh, Nicholas Humbert and Simone Fairbringer, who are great independent filmmakers. Uh, but I would say Ingmar Bergman, he's got everything and his... Um, cinematographer Sven Nyquist <laughs> and you know you yeah. you know yeah you know Seventh Seal my one of my favorite movies you know so so you could learn everything you know and also just go to the Met and stand in front front of Peter Bruegel <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you, and that's what I taught it, you know, that's what I taught. I used to just drag people to the Met and they go, what are we doing here? Why aren't we looking at a picture? I go, you are, you are. <laughs> Barbara, thank you so much. It was a joy to oh, talk with you. Oh, uh, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And I thank you again. You're, you're absolutely great. There are a lot of podcasts out there, including some of my favorite shows on NPR, that are facing a lot of financial challenges. Shows are being canceled or being put on indefinite hiatus as podcast production companies try to figure out how to make these shows viable and profitable. Now, we're not facing such issues, but we still have our own challenges. You know, the show is not my primary source of income, despite how much I wish it was. I do it because I love the conversations and I know that you do too. However, putting these shows out every year costs time and it costs money. And unfortunately, our costs go up while our income sometimes decreases. Because though we do have periodic advertisers, we are primarily dependent on you, our listeners. And unfortunately, we've seen contributions decline. I know there is no shortage of people and shows asking you for money. But if this show is making a difference in your career, your art, your life, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can contribute $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. We continue to be committed to delivering a great show to you, but please show your support to the work we're doing. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thank you. Thanks to Barbara for joining us. Learn more about her work by visiting menchphoto.com. If you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Links are on our website. I'll be leading a hybrid street photography workshop in Los Angeles through the Los Angeles Center of Photography beginning November 1st. If you're in the area, please consider signing up by visiting lacphoto.org or clicking on the link in the show notes or the website.
We've relaunched our newsletter. If you haven't received updates on everything related to TCF, including book recommendations and announcements about special events and workshops from us and some of our guests, please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.